And now would you please stand for the reading of the scripture for the morning, which will be coming from Matthew 1, uh, verses 18 to 25. Matthew 1, 18 to 25, if you care to look along in your Bibles. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Well, good morning again. I hope you're all well this morning. I'm a little bit under the weather. I think it might have something to do with taking my kids to ice yesterday, where we stepped out of the 75-degree weather into 9-degree weather, and then when all the kids were either crying or on the verge of tears for being so cold, we stepped back into the 75-degree weather, and uh, now I'm sick. (laughs) But even so, I am really glad to be here with you this morning. If you see a little of this, you'll know what I'm doing. Um, But I've been excited about being in our Advent series for some months now. We're in Matthew. You know, if you were here last week, we're walking this Advent season through the first two chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. And this morning, we're 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 in the passage following the genealogy of Jesus. So last week, we saw that Matthew wanted to tell us something about the human origins of our Savior Jesus. And this morning, we see that Matthew wants to tell us something about the divine origins of our Savior Jesus. And if you watch the History Channel this time of year, or the Discovery Channel, or National Geographic, you're going to see see shows with titles like in search of the historical Jesus, which is code for, we don't really believe the Bible. <laughs> you know, we don't really believe in miracles like the virgin birth, like the resurrection. We want to know who the real Jesus was. And so that's what those shows are, are trying to accomplish. And we might come to expect something like that from, say, a, a non-Christian source. But this abounds in the church as well. A recent Pew Research study showed that 30% of practicing Protestant Christians in the United States do not believe in the virgin birth. 30%. A friend of mine who's friends with Tim Keller, I don't know Tim Keller, but this friend does. uh, he, He was saying a few months ago, Tim and his wife Kathy were invited to a very liberal seminary in New York City. And, uh, and he was there at lunch, and in, on his, at his table were professors and uh, very well-known scholars, most of whom we probably, this room, wouldn't know because they're on the liberal side. 
And one of the scholars uh, began to say over lunch, the main thing that Christianity needs today is to let go of these miracles. If we would just let go of the miracles, Christians would be better off. And so they began to go around the table, each one contributing their own support of this idea. And then it got back to Tim Keller. And he said, actually, I don't mean to make this awkward, but I do believe in all the miracles. I, I do believe in the virgin birth and the resurrection. And honestly, if I didn't believe in the virgin birth and the resurrection, I wouldn't be a pastor or a professor. <laughs> you know, I'd hang it all up because at the end of the day, if when we lose the miracles, we lose Christianity altogether. So why is that? Why is it that these miracles are so important to the Christian faith? They're important Because without the virgin birth and the resurrection, we're left with a Jesus who cannot save us from our sins, who cannot defeat death, and ultimately can't be a mediator between sinful us and a holy God. Because to be a mediator, you need to be both human in that he was tempted in every way as we are. He understands our pains and our plights and our griefs and our losses. But he has to be divine too. To be able to stand in front of a holy God, having withstood all those temptations, remaining sinless, and be able to intercede for us. So without these miracles, specifically the miracle of the virgin birth and the resurrection, we lose our entire faith. And so this morning, we come to a passage where I think Matthew is very intentionally wanting to communicate something about the div- the divinity of Jesus, the divine origins of Jesus. You know, when he, when he, he used the word genealogy last week and he uses the word birth this week and both of them come from the same Greek root word. I, I think he's separating this very intentionally saying, that's what I want you to see about his humanity. And now this week, this is what I want you to see about his divinity. And I wanna look at this passage and see at least two pieces of his divinity. There are more if you, in other parts of scripture, but this passage has two proofs, two evidences of the divinity of Jesus. And we get those evidences from the way that he came and what he was called, okay? Those are, those are the two points this morning. The way that he came and what he was called. So how he came, how did Jesus come to this earth? Jesus came by being born of a virgin. We see this in verse 18, right off the bat. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So, in that day of age, we're talking about a Mary that was somewhere between, say, 13 and early 20s, probably closer to 13. And... They are betrothed, and a betrothal in in that society would have been something with more commitment than our engagement, but less commitment than than our marriage today. So you would have the covenant, but you would not have the consummation. And a betrothal was so legally binding that you had to get a legal divorce to call it off. That was the arrangement that exists between Mary and Joseph. And Luke and Matthew are the only two accounts that we have of the birth of Jesus. Okay, so it's really important that we look at these accounts because we're not going to get a lot from the rest of the Bible about the birth of Jesus and how it happened. And even Luke and Matthew are very different in the way they approach this. Luke approaches the birth of Jesus from the perspective of Mary. And I think it's kind of interesting if you, if you know your original languages, 
Luke is an excellent Greek writer. But in his account of the birth of Jesus, you get one of the most Hebrew-sounding portions of the entire New Testament. Why is this? Luke's a historian, and somebody who wrote Hebrew or spoke fluent Hebrew had recounted that story to him. And many scholars think it was Mary herself. And Luke so valued getting that story right that he just directly translated it into Hebrew. I don't know, but that is, that is a theory out there, and I think there's a lot of support for it. But in any case, we know that Luke's account of the virgin birth is written from Mary's perspective. So it's joyful. She's excited. Matthew, however, is writing from the perspective of Joseph. Joseph, whose betrothed Mary was pregnant. It wasn't by him. So there's a much more somber mood. This was a small town, probably of a few hundred Surely Joseph and Mary grew up knowing each other. It's very likely that he loved her deeply by this point. And so when you read Matthew's account, there's a more sobering feel to it than you read in Luke's. And at this point, I want to acknowledge that obviously the virgin birth is very, uh, is very debated outside of the Christian world. And even inside some of the more liberal parts of Christianity, as I said... And one of the things the the people who are pushing on the virgin birth will say is something like, well, they just didn't have all the scientific knowledge that we have now to really understand what was going on. To which I I wonder, what scientific knowledge did they lack 2,000 years ago to understand how a woman got pregnant? I I don't think Joseph and Mary were lacking anything in their ability to understand what was going on around them. And I've wondered more recently... If Mary made this all up, all right, if she knew there was really a a human father that nobody knew about, father of Jesus, why then as he's being tried and brought up onto a cross, did she not cry out, it's a lie, I made all of it up. You know, I don't know that that would have gotten Jesus off, but I think any good mother, if she had something she could contribute for her son being spared the death penalty, she would have, any good mother would have done it but not Mary because she couldn't, because the story was true. Her birth had, his birth had in fact been of supernatural origins. So other people would would say, well, yeah, really, there's all these ancient Near East myths of God's coming down and and having uh, relations with women. And so really the, the virgin birth narrative, it's not new. Robert Jackson, one of our pastoral interns and soon to be introduced to you as a new member, he and I were in Rome this year and we heard a tour guide in the forum basically go on a rant at how Matthew just borrowed this virgin birth story from all the ancient Near East myths. And, and there are, although not identical, other stories that do predate Jesus' Jesus's birth. And personally, I think Matthew knew about them. (laughs) I think he was acknowledging in this text that he knew about these other myths. And he's in some way saying, this doesn't come from the other myths. This is rooted long before those other myths. We have prophecy concerning the virgin birth. And this is where in verse 22, he says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Matthew's saying, I'm not borrowing from anybody. We've had these these prophecies for a very long time. And they don't start with Isaiah either, the the prophet that he's quoting here. 
You can go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3 and see the precursors of the virgin birth. Look at Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And people for thousands of years have wondered, why is it the woman's offspring? You know, we talked about last week with the genealogy, the lineage goes through a man in that, in that day, not the woman. They were largely irrelevant in that culture. But here, God is saying through her offspring, your head will be crushed. Why is that? Well, the Hebrew word for offspring is literally seed. And only a woman would have a seed to contribute to the birth of Jesus. No man ever would. So you see the foundations of the virgin birth at the beginning of time. And so I don't know, maybe, maybe the ancient Near East myths came from these prophecies. Maybe there's a spiritual enemy who wants to use this to confuse the coming of the Messiah. This week, uh, I was driving with my three older kids, and my oldest said, Daddy, who do you think hates Christmas the most? I think it's the Grinch. So that's a, that's a, a, you'd have a strong case for that, buddy. And then my other son, Colin, said, nope, I think it's Scrooge. So that's a strong contender there, too. And then Ivy said, I'm pretty sure it's Satan. <laughs> so, winner, he hates Christmas the most. So I don't think it's that far-fetched that we have a spiritual enemy who would know what was going to happen, what was prophesied, and would want to confuse it. I don't know, but I'm going to go with Ivy. But I do know that Matthew isn't asking us to take the virgin birth alone, okay? This is the beginning of the story. And the virgin birth is not the craziest thing that happens in this book. <laughs> if you've read Matthew, you know what happens at the end. Jesus resurrects. He comes back from the dead. Matthew is asking us to stay with him throughout the course of the whole story. And if if we can believe the resurrection, I would argue the virgin birth actually isn't that big of a deal. That's not that hard to believe when you look at a man coming back from the dead. I had uh, a very good friend and Sunday school teacher about eight years ago walk away from his family and the Christian faith. And a number of us were, were with him and we were pleading with him not to do this. And in one of our times together, he said, I just can't get past the virgin birth. I was like, Really? The virgin birth, because we have the resurrection, the, one of the most historically plausible and provable pieces of antiquity. I mean, you had over 500 people who saw Jesus. You had Roman soldiers who would have wanted to, to show the body who, and dismiss all the rumors that are going around, but they couldn't. You know, it wasn't like these, these disciples were going to overpower the Roman soldiers and steal the body from them. And then you had, speaking of disciples, these disciples who were unbelievably discouraged and in despair when they saw Jesus killed and something happens to where they go on devoting their lives and all but one would actually die for their belief that Jesus really resurrected from the dead. So you have all this evidence around the resurrection and, and the virgin birth is the thing you can't get around. But... As for most people who walk away from the faith, they want to, and they're just looking for reasons to justify it. I don't believe that virgin birth was actually the thing that kept him from staying with his family in the faith. But Matthew is asking us to look at the whole story. And 
Before I get back to the narrative, I, I want to acknowledge I've, I've talked about those among us who minimize the miracles, all right? I also want to talk about those among us who extend the miracles, especially this miracle of the virgin birth. I lived in Italy for five years, and I have many good friends who believe deeply that Mary was perpetually a virgin, okay? After the birth of Jesus, she went back to that state and stayed to that, in that state forever. And I would say there's nothing in Scripture that gives any kind of insinuation that that was the case. Nor, and this is most important to me, nor was it in any way necessary for, for the birth of Christ to come about and our Savior to come into this world. And I would argue that actually Scripture does say quite a bit in these passages that that wasn't the case. In verse 18, we see where Matthew says, before they came together insinuating something happened later. And then, and I think most credibly, verse 25, Matthew says, but he, Joseph, knew her not until she had given birth. We know that Jesus had brothers. So when we come to these, the miracle of the virgin birth, we need to be on guard that we're not minimizing the miracle and we're not extending the miracle. We are, with the rest of biblical biblical Christianity, embracing the miracle. That's what Matthew is asking us to do. So, returning now to our story. Mary is pregnant. What does Joseph do? I mean, this, this had to be incredibly hard for Joseph. There's a good chance he loved her. He cared about her at the very least. Her name, Joseph, was a just man. So he knew he couldn't marry her. But he didn't want to shame her either. So the, the text says that he resolved to divorce her quietly. That is... Until God intervened. Look at verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Jesus was born of a virgin, and Matthew is making bold claims in that account about the divine nature of Jesus Christ. But before we move on, we can't ignore the way that our, our God broke into this world. He came as a baby. As a baby. The most powerless and helpless creatures maybe on the face of the earth. I mean, if you watch TV and see a giraffe born, that giraffe is walking like five minutes later. I don't know that there is as helpless of a newborn in creation as a human baby. I got this illustration from J.D. Shaw. But imagine if you, if you came home late one night and you heard some noise in your bushes and you look over there and there's a grown man in your bushes. How would you respond? That probably depends on if you have mace with you or not. But at the very least, I think it's safe to say all of us would be extremely alarmed we would, because we don't know what that man is intending to do, why he's there. But what if you looked over there and the noise, excuse me, was coming from cat or a dog, all right, what would happen? You're, you're, obviously, your level of alarm would go way down, <laughs> but you would still have some level of alarm. There would still be some caution about you because you don't know if that dog, that cat is safe or not. But if imagine you looked in those bushes and there was a little human baby, <laughs> how would you react? You wouldn't just not be alarmed. You would be concerned for this helpless baby. You would, you would run to that baby. You would grab that baby. You would do whatever you can to help that baby. Because it is so powerless and so helpless. 
During my tenure at Grace Bible Church, I made a lot of hospital visits, and 98% of them were for babies being born. <laughs> During my tenure there, I, I think the average age of the church went from 13 and a half to 18. So we had a lot of babies being born. And you know what? I never heard a mom say when I walk into that room and the newborn is lying there, don't worry, Jim, the baby's safe. It's not going to hurt you. You can hold it. It's okay. No one would ever say that because a baby is helpless. And this is the way that our king chose to come into this world. And Paul, reflecting on this, says that the way that Jesus came into this world, he emptied himself. He emptied himself. Now, that doesn't mean that that Jesus ceased to be divine in any way. It means that he added to his divinity humanity. And in adding humanity to his divinity, he brought on scorn and humiliation and pain that he wouldn't have experienced otherwise. And because Christ is the foundation of Christianity, Christ who took on flesh, that brought on scorn and humiliation, we need to be aware that likely by taking on the name of Christ, we're going to be accepting some of the same kinds of scorn and humiliation. And I think the only way to be okay with that is to look at the degree to which Jesus humbled himself to pursue us. If we continually go back there and look at that, then we're going to see a well from which we can draw bucket and bucket of patience and perseverance when we're scorned because of what we believe, because when we're left out of things because of what we're believed, when we're even challenged and looked down on because of what it is that we believe. And there may be someone in this room who would think something like, okay, Jim, I, I hear what you're saying, God to baby, that's, that's a big jump. But but a baby. I mean, how much scorn is God going to get by entering in the world as a baby? Well, imagine if that baby was born of a virgin birth. <laughs> imagine what Jesus would have heard his whole life about his father, about his mother. Things I could never repeat on a Sunday. And I think we even get a glimpse of what's going on in John 8 when the Pharisees say to him, you are doing the works your father did. They said to him, the Pharisees, we were not born of sexual morality. So you can hear it. Jesus chose the most humble, the most powerless way to enter into our world. And in doing so, he endured every temptation that we will ever experience, every emotion that we will ever experience. He knows our griefs and our pains. And because of that, he gets us. He empathizes with us. But because he was born of a virgin, he can remain sinless. He has a divine personality. And he can stand in front of a holy and perfect God and intercede for every one of us. He gets us and he gets God. And that is why Jesus is our perfect intercessor, why he is our perfect intermediary. So we can see his divinity supported in the way that he came, but then every bit as much in what he is called. What he's called. In verse 23. Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us. Let's read. All this took place to fulfill 
what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Okay, so the prophet that Matthew is quoting is Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 7. And the immediate context of Isaiah is actually hotly debated. But at the very least, I think we can say this is what's going on in Isaiah 7. The kingdom of Israel has been divided. You have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Judah is led by evil King Ahaz through whom the messianic lineage was supposed to continue, is supposed to continue. And so the kingdoms are divided. The northern kingdom of Israel is teaming up with Assyria to go and defeat Judah. And on top of all of that, Ahaz has decided he is not going to follow Yahweh. He is going to stay in his evil ways. And Isaiah is coming to Ahaz and communicating to him, whether you follow Yahweh or not, God is going to continue the line that he has established. It will go better for you if you serve him, but God doesn't depend on you. One day, our Savior will come born of a virgin. That's the context of Isaiah 7. And I can remember reading this and and wondering, so why is he named Jesus? (laughs) It said his name would be Emmanuel. I mean, did did the angel just not know his scripture very well? Why is he named Jesus? And the answer is no, the angel did not lack in its understanding of scripture. Jesus has many names. Lord of Lords, King of Kings, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Son of man, Lamb of Judah, Jesus, which means Yahweh will save. And then he has this name Emmanuel, which communicates as much, if not more, than all the other names. Emmanuel means God with us. And so if we believe that Jesus is God with us, then there are four implications to our understanding of who Jesus is. Four implications. The first is that Jesus is divine, okay? I mean, it it sounds simple, but if he's really God with us, he really is divine. Matthew is wanting to communicate something in saying this is the Emmanuel. And not just God with us in that Jesus came for 33 years, he was with us, and then he left, now he's gone. God with us means he is always with us. Do you remember how Matthew finished his letter, the last words that he recorded Jesus saying? Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He is divine and he will be with us always. This, this week, some of you may have seen it, John MacArthur, a very well-known Christian pastor in California, he has a radio show that's been probably going as long as I've been alive. That's right, Listen. This is an important part. So John MacArthur went on the Ben Shapiro show. All right, Ben Shapiro is a, is a very well-known conservative talk show host, and he's also Jewish. And so they got together, and honestly, I, I wanted to watch it because I, I, I know of both of them, and I expected it to kind of get heated very quickly, maybe explosive. And to both of their credit, it did not, at least the parts that I saw. They were very calm. It was a, a nice back and forth. But Ben Shapiro said to... John MacArthur, 
You know, I believe that, that Jesus existed. He was a good man. He was a good Jew. He was a good prophet. He was a good teacher. But I just can't believe that he was God. I, I, I think that's just a modern interpretation. I don't think that people really would have believed he was Jesus, the son of God, divine in his coming. To which John MacArthur said, then why did they kill him? You don't murder in those days a good prophet, a good teacher, a good man. Jesus did something that caused the Jewish people to want to execute him. And that thing is claiming his own deity. I'm going to give you four verses. There are lots more. Four verses that support what John MacArthur was saying. John 14, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. John 10, the Jews answered him, it is not good, it it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you for blasphemy, but because you being a man make yourself God. John 5, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling, calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And then John 8, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. We have options of what we do with Jesus, but a good teacher is not one of them. Jesus did not leave that option open to us. And in the vein of C.S. Lewis, we can call him Lord, we can call him liar, we can call him lunatic. But good man, good teacher is not a door that is open to us. That was closed by Jesus when he decided to claim he was God to everybody around him. So first implication of God with us, he's divine. Second, we will never be alone. We will never be alone. God with us doesn't mean that he came and he left. He will always be with us. Again, Matthew 28, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. God with us means that Jesus will always be with us in the form of his Holy Spirit. He will always be with us in the scary times, in the confusing times, in the lonely times, in the frustrating times. And I misspoke earlier, but this is how Matthew finishes. And behold, I will be with you always to the end of the age. So I'm imagining somebody here hearing that God will be with us always and saying in your head, but I don't feel him right now. I hear you saying that, but I'm not experiencing that. And my question to you, if that's where you are right now, is are you seeking? Are you seeking? And the answer is the same whether you're a Christian or not. If you're not a Christian, you're not experiencing God because you have not sought him through Jesus Christ. But all of that can change today. And if you are a Christian, my question is the same. Are you seeking? Is there some unconfessed, unrepentant sin in your life that's causing you to not experience the blessing of God being with you? And maybe you're in a season where there isn't unconfessed sin. It just feels like a dry season. And if that's you, I want you to know I've been there too. I've walked with many faithful Christians through those seasons. And I think you can read the Psalms and be very encouraged that you're not alone. Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? 
You're not alone if you feel like you're in a dry season, but a dry season doesn't mean that God's not with you. We continue to seek him and he will make himself known. Look again in the Psalm, Psalm 27. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. For all of us, if we don't feel the presence of God, that doesn't mean he's not there, so we seek. We continue to seek him. But here... There's a third aspect of of Jesus being God with us that goes beyond the trials of this life. The third aspect is that if we seek God through Jesus, we will be saved. Look at verse 21. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. We have a lot of problems in this room. All of us are experiencing problems, but none of those worldly problems is actually our biggest problem. (laughs) Our biggest problem is our sin. And Alistair Begg makes the argument from this text that, that we're not being saved from our sins. It's plural there because we're talking about many people. We're each individually being saved from our sin. There's a difference in the way that we hear that. We're not being saved from all the bad decisions we make. We're being saved from the underlying disease that causes us to make those bad decisions, that causes us to think wrongly and act wrongly. That's what we're being saved from. Sin is the natural inclination to want to tell God, I know how to run my life. (laughs) This natural inclination to take things into our own hands. That's our underlying disease. It's called a sin issue. And Jesus, Matthew is promising Jesus is the way that we will be saved from that issue. And we're not saved like we're just getting off the, the hook somehow. We're, just, we're not being punished because accompanying sin is an everlasting punishment. There's a reason why little girls like stories of a prince saving a damsel in distress. You know, why is it never an average Joe who comes in and saves the day and says, you may be on your way now? You know, that's not a fun story. Little girls like these stories because they're not just saved from something, they're saved to someone. The prince offers a life of riches and love. And I think this is akin to the way that Matthew is telling us that Jesus is going to come and save us. If we believe in Jesus, we will be saved from our sin. And we know that this world is temporary, that he is coming back. And that brings me to my fourth and last implication. If Jesus is God with us, we will be with him forever. We will be with him forever. We aren't just saved from something, we're saved to someone. And so you see creation in the Bible from the time of the fall in the garden, longing to be with its creator. And God gave us through the development of the Bible, the development of his people, he gave us something called a temple. Temples over in 
in Jewish and Christian understanding, a temple is the meeting place between a, a holy God and sinful man. So the tabernacle was a temple. The temple was obviously a temple. Then Jesus himself was a meeting place of God with man. But then obviously he physically left and now we're the temple because we're filled with the Holy Spirit. But one day there's a promise that we get to be with him and we don't have to settle for small restricted temples anymore. The whole universe is a temple because we are with him for eternity. That is one of the most beautiful implications of Jesus being Emmanuel, God with us. And that's the hope of Revelation chapter 21 where John writes, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And if Jesus really is God, if he really is divine, in the words of one pastor, this is going to cause a crisis in everyone's life. Everyone who's presented with this Jesus is going to be forced into a crisis. We have to respond to this in some way. You know, the Jews had to respond to Jesus in some way. Some of them ran from him. Some of them fought him. Some of them bowed to him. And we are left with the same options. Because just thinking Jesus is a good man, a good teacher, it is not intellectually tenable. That is not a door we have open to us. Joseph's crisis was when Mary was pregnant. He resolved to run. He wasn't going to fight. He was going to run until an angel showed up and said, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Marry this girl. And so in that moment, that was Joseph's crisis and Joseph's bowing. And in the same way, all of us are going to have to decide whether we're going to bow, whether we're going to fight, or whether we're going to run. And certainly there is a, a first time that we need to make this decision, and I think most of you have made that decision. But if you're a Christian today, you've known if you've been a Christian for more than, let's say, five months, <laughs> that it's not just one time that we bow. The Christian life is a call to bow over and over and over again because we're constantly presented with crises that we need to decide, am I going to believe Jesus? Am I going to trust him? Am I going to bow to him or am I going to run and fight? The Christian life is one of continually bowing. And to those who endure to the end, who bow to the end, we are not just saved from something, we're saved to someone. And to us awaits an eternity of riches and love. Have you noticed in the, the New Testament, the birth of Jesus, it isn't actually talked about a lot. I mentioned this in the beginning. Really, Matthew and, and Luke are the, the only ones that really, really talk about it. So why is that? Is it because the birth of Jesus really wasn't that, that important? No. It's because the birth of Jesus was just the beginning of the story. All right? Christmas doesn't save anybody. It's the promise of Christmas that does. Jesus came as a baby, but the promise is he is going to come back. He is going to give us new bodies, a new heaven, and a new earth, and we will reign with him. With the presence of sin being vanquished forever, that's the promise of Christmas. So my hope 
as we look at the birth of Jesus is that we wouldn't just stay there, that this Christmas season would cause our our minds and our hearts to go to the second coming. Joni Erickson Tata, a name many of you recognize, she wrote, every Christmas is still a turning of the page until Jesus returns. So this Christmas season, my challenge to myself and to everyone else is to look at this Christmas as just one more page turning until Jesus comes back and makes everything right. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you. Even in this rainy weather, in seasons that can feel as dark as the sky is outside, that we have a promise that you have not forgotten us, that you are pursuing us and you will finish what you have started. And I pray that this would be a knowledge that would go from our heads deep into our hearts and that from believing this more deeply, we would more accurately display the love and humility and patience and grace that Jesus has on us. And I pray that as, we, as that happens, that we would increasingly be lights in a very dark place. And I pray that by our lives, by your grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would be used to both strengthen and expand your kingdom in this Christmas season. We thank you for this time to come together. We love you, we lift you up, and we pray this in your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.